I would say that sleep is the single most effective thing that you can do to reset your brain and body health. And every major disease that is killing us in developed worlds um, has significant links, many of them causal to a lack of sleep. That list includes cancer, certain forms of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, uh, as well as most recently suicide and depression. And that's why I think there is a very simple truth using that sweet spot of seven to nine hours a night. The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. That is the voice of Matthew Walker, the genius neuroscientist behind the worldwide best-selling book, Why We Sleep. I first interviewed Matthew a few weeks after the book's release three years ago, since which he has become our planet's go-to sleep guru. Sleep is the foundation of all well-being, the mattress without which the pillows of diet and fitness would have nothing to lie on other than the floor. You miss out on one hour sleep below the absolute minimum of seven to nine hours for the average adult and the negative side effects will begin to kick in immediately when you wake up and get on with your day or try to get on with your day. Chronic lack of sleep has now been proven to increase the likelihood of, amongst other evils, Alzheimer's, death by dangerous driving, plus many forms of cancer. It is, in short, vital we do everything we can to get as much sleep as we need, prepared to have your mind blown by the one, the only, Mr Sleep, Matthew Walker. That's in a moment. But first, allow me a second to inform you, this episode of How to Wow is brought to you by The Sunday Times Life Lessons with added How to Wow, for which tickets are on sale right now at lifelessonsfestival.com. Life Lessons was an instant hit earlier this year, indoors at the Barbican, when it was still winter. So hopefully next year it will be an absolute smash as we're holding it outdoors at the amazing Chiswick House in early spring. Our three-day inspirational festival is back for its second year in 2021 from Friday, May 14th to Sunday, May 16th with wise words and super intelligent wit and wisdom from a sparkling lineup of speakers including Graham Norton, Catelyn Moran, Ruby Wax, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, Bernadine Evaristo, Bryony Gordon, Kimberly Wilson, Professor Robert Thomas, Kate Humble, Jay Blades, Elif Shafak, Majid Majid and many, many more. There'll be talks, interviews, workshops, classes, tens of thousands Thousands of books and exhibitors, plus some very special food and drink available to keep you fueled and fired up all day long. Plus, we'll be recording our first ever How to Wow live podcast with the likes of, he's already booked, Professor Brian Cox. I honestly can't wait and I'd love to see you there. There's never been a more apt time to consider rebooting and rethinking our lives together in the presence of great thinkers such as the crew that are going to be attending Life Lessons with added How to Wow. As I say, tickets are on sale at lifelessonsfestival.com. Com. And this episode is also brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. And so here's how you can get yours. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. Okay, and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal Athletic Greens have given how to wow listeners. A free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel-free packs to date. 
take with you on the go. Once again, athleticgreens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Okay, all good in the hood with those guys' support. We can crack right on now and for a good few weeks to come, if not years, if not forever or for as long as we continue to make sense. And we stand much more chance of that being the case if you, if we together, listen to every single syllable the star of this week's podcast has to utter. Cue the conversation with Matthew Walker. All right, Matthew. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? What's going down? I am outstanding. Um, It is just uh, middle of the morning here, and I appreciate the... uh, the early evening work being put in there, so I'm desperately sorry about the time difference. No problem. Is that because you are protecting your sleep window? Um, in a way, yes. I won't do very early morning interviews um, where I have to wake up at sort of five or six. Um, sleep is a non-negotiable for me. And and it's not just because I want to be like a poster child for good sleep. Um if you know what I end up knowing about sleep after 20 years, you wouldn't sacrifice it. It's just not worth it. Do you know what? I read your book again um, yesterday and today, and I listened to a few podcasts, and I, I'd forgotten all that you taught me three years ago. I was disgusted with myself. <laughs> Don't worry. In this next sort of uh, hour or so, we will get you back on track. This is a sleep reboot for Chris Evans. No, I know. And the thing is, Matthew, you know, I'm aware of practices when it comes to meditation and when it comes to stretching and when it comes to exercise. And I thought I had a practice when it came to sleep. You know, I have my sleep window because, you know, I probably have the worst job, don't I? Because I get yeah. up at 3.30. So I, I am, midnight for me is closer to me getting up than it is to me going to bed, which is very rare nowadays, isn't it? Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, um, I need your help more than anybody else. <laughs> but the, but the podcast is not about me. It's about no, you. No, and no, no. no <laughs> it, it's going to be applicable to everyone. But this is going to be uh, a one hour one on one therapy session and uh, pro bono. OK. Um, now, did you imagine when you started to write your book four years before it was finished? So back in sort of 2013 ish that you'd still be talking about it three years after it was published? No, I didn't even think that the book was really going to sell. I thought, you know, maybe two copies that my uh, my mum and dad would buy um, a copy each and that would be it. Um, so firstly, the success of the book uh, was a surprise. Although looking back, I now think I start to understand better why it was. And it is um, in spite of my writing and my idiocy of language rather than because of it. Um, but. I think the second thing is that sleep is evergreen, that I wanted to write a book that had a long tail that wasn't necessarily successful, but was significant. And if I could just write a book that was significant and perennial in that sort of sense, I felt as though it could have a a sort of a shelf life rather than, let's say, like a fad diet where all of a sudden you get a big spike in sales and then it dies a death, you know, a year later. Um, Sleep, it took Mother Nature 3.6 million years to put this necessity of a seven to nine hour sleep window in place. And the science behind that now, I think, is unequivocal. So I, I didn't feel as though it was probably going to go anywhere anytime soon. 
And, uh, you know, you've had your challenges with regards to the book, you know. What do you know more about sleep now uh, since the book was published, say, to three years ago? So what have you yourself learned in the subsequent three years after publishing date? I think I've learned on two different levels. One is that we've got even more science now and I've been able to update my mental sort of operating system with that and, and that's your responsibility as a scientist. I think the second is a shift in how you communicate with the public. Um, when I started to come out with the book and started to be sort of featured in the public eye, sleep was really the neglected stepsister in the health conversation. And I was so passionate and so desperate to reunite humanity with the sleep that it was so clearly bereft of that you sort of become, I think, sort of almost overbearing. And I think the message at the time to begin with was sleep or else, sort of dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and I think when people speak in two extremes, when people speak in absolutes, it can sometimes be a little bit too much. So being a little bit more relaxed around how I communicate the science of sleep has been a great lesson to me. And I think I've been a better um, individual in terms of being moderate in that sense. And then I've updated my uh, beliefs on lots of different things, uh, things such as uh, blue light from screens, um, I've updated my beliefs regarding coffee and the uh, the benefits of caffeine, although it still has terrible detriments on our sleep, but I've changed in that mentality too. I've realized, I think now based on the science, that sleep quality is just as important as sleep quantity. So I think to answer your question, those are the two different planes on which my um, my belief system and my communication system has changed. All right, well, that's that's music to my ears. Quantity um, as well as quality or quantity over uh, quality over quantity if you don't have quantity available to you. So for those uh, who are being initiated by this conversation, and that's what we're here for because we've both had the conversation a thousand times before, we, we just want to get more people to the party. Give us the short list of the long list of important aspects of our lives that suffer if we don't get enough sleep, whatever that may be. I would say that sleep is the single most effective thing that you can do to reset your brain and body health. And every major disease that is killing us in developed worlds um, has significant links, many of them causal to a lack of sleep. That list includes cancer, certain forms of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, uh, as well as most recently suicide and depression. And that's why I think there is a very simple truth using that sweet spot of seven to nine hours a night. The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. Short sleep predicts all-cause mortality. Okay, because that's something you've been criticized for, but you're sticking to that, are you? Well, I think the idea was that um, if you start to look at this relationship, it's not linear. In other words, the more and more sleep that you get, um, it's not necessarily the lower and lower your risk of mortality. There's this very interesting J-shaped curve, meaning that once you get past about nine hours of sleep, your mortality risk actually starts to increase again. In other words, could there be <laughs> such a thing as too much sleep? Well, firstly, one explanation for that is when you look at those studies, when we get sick, when we have disease, the thing that we typically do is curl up in bed and we try to sleep ourselves well. 
because there's a very intimate relationship between our sleep health and our immune health. And so in other words, in those studies, there were individuals who were very sick and their bodies were responding with more sleep to try and sleep them well. But whatever disease they had was too severe and they still died. But it looks as though more sleep was related to a higher death risk, even though sleep was trying to come to the salvation of those individuals. That's one explanation. The second is back to sleep quality. So we know that poor sleep quality increases your risk of death. And we know that people who have poor sleep quality will often try and stay in bed longer to try and get back more sleep because the quality is so bad. In other words, poor quality sleep masquerades as longer sleep, which then looks as though it increases your mortality risk. So that's another explanation for that strange relationship. But let's just take it to a theoretical realm. Could there be such a thing as too much sleep? And I actually think yes. And I wrote about this in the book, even though sort of some people ignored it, which was, you know, it's no different than the three other main critical ingredients of life, food, oxygen and water. Can we overeat? Absolutely. And can we undereat? Yes, we can. Can you drink too much water? It happened in the 1990s in the ecstasy craze. Governments were saying, you look, you're dancing all night in clubs. You're going to dehydrate, drink more water. People drank too much. They had hypertension and stroke. And then you can think about oxygen. If you get too much oxygen, it can create what we call free radicals in the brain, which will destroy brain cells. So um, I don't think sleep is any different than those three other ingredients. It's a bell-shaped curve. There's a sweet spot here. Um, are most individuals in danger of getting too much sleep in this modern world <laughs> au contraire? No, not at all. Not for a second. Now, you are the perfect interviewee because A, you're dead clever. B, you're really nice. C, you've written a fantastic book. And D, you've talked about it loads over the last three years. And E, listeners, when you interview Matthew, he sends you a list of questions in the order you might want to ask him them so you don't have to do any work. But I've got like six pages of notes here. I've been watching things with you on over the last 24 hours because I can't help myself. So we can go your way. Uh, we can take your route, Matthew, or we can have some fun facts or you can experiment on me in having a, this conversation in a different way because you've had it so many blooming times before so feel free to use me as some kind of laboratory sort of guinea pig or or, or lab rat i don't really <laughs> mind which, which way do you want to go with this i have no agenda i would love just to go organically in whatever go with whatever interests you i'm sure it will interest the audience i have um, no need to go through any structure whatsoever <laughs> and i i don't well, get I don't... tired about talking with uh, about sleep i am it is a love affair i've had for 20 years um, I am utterly enamored with it. It is a beguiling topic and I can never stop talking about it. All right. Um, well, let's give some people some takeaways straight off the bat. So I'm staying in a hotel tonight because of the lateness of, of this conversation, our time. So so if I'm staying in a hotel tonight, you, you have said in the past, and people would love to hear this, if they've never heard it before, um, my my brain is going to have you know half an eye on not sleeping, isn't it? It is, and it's called unihemispheric sleep. Why scientists come up with such language um, is bizarre. It just means that one half of your brain is going to sleep differently than the other. Now, this happens in an extreme version in other species. So, for example, um, dolphins will have one half of their break what brain wide awake 
and the other is in deep sleep. And the reason is so that they can keep surfacing and sort of sample some air, but it gives the brain the ability to still get the sleep that it needs. Um, another version of this, which I absolutely adore, is birds. Birds also have unihemispheric sleep. Why would they do this? Why is it adaptive? Well, when you see a flock of birds that all line up along a branch of a tree, it turns out that all of the um, girls and the guys in the middle of that bunch, they sleep with both halves of their brain. But the unfortunate folks on the far left and the far right, they will only sleep with half of the brain. And that means that the half of the uh, brain that is wide awake allows the eye on that side of the uh, the bird to keep a lookout for the flock. In other words, one eye threat detection on far left, and then the other guy on the opposite end, he has the other eye open, so he has um, right-sided sort of, you know, um, uh, threat detection. And so the whole flock gets a 360-degree vision of potential threats because these guys at the ends, the sentinels, they're sleeping with half a brain. And then you would think that once they've done their stint, they would get the chance to go into the middle and someone else sort of shifts to the outer side and they have to sleep with half a brain. No, what happens is that the guys and girls at the end, they stand up, they rotate 180 degrees, they sit back down and then they switch halves of the brain so that the other half can sleep. So this is what we call unihemispheric sleep and we see it a lot in animals and we thought humans didn't do it because we didn't see it until we looked a little bit harder and what we find is that when human beings go and sleep in a location that is not familiar in other words a location that you don't know is necessarily safe one half of the brain sleeps a little bit lighter than the other. One half gets deep sleep, the other stays in more shallow sleep. It's not wide awake, but it's in shallow sleep. And then it switches. In other words, there may be a sort of a diet version of this unihemispheric sleep in human beings. It's sort of, you know, sleep light, L-I-T-E. And that's what you may have if you're unfamiliar with the hotel this evening. Yeah, and I always stay in the same room because I stay in town a lot. Stay, I stay in the same room in the same hotel. Will that help? It will, and that's called context-dependent sleep. In other words, as long as you've got that context and you've got familiarity of signals coming into your brain, your brain is going to say, okay, I know this place. Nothing bad has happened necessarily before, and so <laughs> your brain is going to ease up into both halves sleeping deeply. So my prediction is that the first time you were there is going to look very different than the sleep that you have tonight. Interesting, interesting. Now, of course, tonight is also another last night before another lockdown. London goes into tier three at one minute past midnight tonight. So I could go out for a pint tonight. Now, if I have a few pints tonight, I may sort of drift off um, easier, but I won't be asleep. I'll be sedated. And those things are definitely different. That's right. It's one of those things that makes me desperately, I mean, I'm desperately unpopular to begin with, but uh, even more unpopular. Alcohol, um, many people turn to alcohol when they're struggling with their sleep because they think that it helps them fall asleep faster. But you're right. Alcohol is in a class of drugs that we call the sedatives. 
And when you have uh, a drink in the evening to help you fall asleep, you mistake sedation for sleep. And they are very different. Sedation is just a case of where you're switching off the brain cells, particularly in the cortex. You're knocking out your cortex, essentially. Deep sleep is very, very different. All of a sudden, hundreds of brain cells, in fact, hundreds of thousands of brain cells, all of a sudden coordinate and they all fire together and then they all go silent together and they fire together and then they go silent together. It's this remarkable coordinated ballet of physiological brilliance that is deep sleep. And you don't see that same thing when your brain is doused with alcohol. So that's the first problem with alcohol. If I show you the electrical signature of your sleep after a couple of nightcaps, it's very different than natural good sleep. The second problem with alcohol is that it fragments your sleep throughout the night. And this is because it will trigger what we call the fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And it will, will release activating brain chemicals so that your sleep is much more fragmented throughout the night and you wake up the next morning and you don't feel as refreshed. The final problem with alcohol is that it will actually block something called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, also known as dream sleep. And so on all three of those counts, alcohol really is to be avoided um, if you want to prioritize your sleep. And I should say, by the way, you know, I'm just a sleep scientist, Chris. I'm, I don't want to be puritanical about this. Life is to be lived to a degree. All I'm here to do is empower you with the science and the knowledge of sleep so then you can make an informed choice as to what you would want to do with your life in terms of prioritizing your sleep. I love it. So REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, that is dream sleep. So if we're not going to get into REM sleep because we're sedated and we're not unconscious, therefore we're not going to dream. And nature wants us to dream. She, We don't know why she wants us to dream, but she does. And if we don't, um, because we're not in deep, a deep enough sleep, if the last couple of hours of our uh, uh, drink or alcohol-induced sedation as opposed to unconsciousness um, then sort of gets into a, a more advanced stage of sleep she might make us dream quickly um and because she'll play catch up in the dream stakes because that's still important but we're still not quite sure why <laughs> so we know some of the functions uh, of dream sleep which we can come back to but you're absolutely right something depending on how much alcohol you've had something interesting happens where people will say to me Look, you know i had a couple of drinks last night um you know it's the weekend and then the next morning, I was having these really strange dreams. Can you explain that? And we can, because what happens is your brain is so smart, it understands how much REM sleep you have not been getting because the alcohol has been swilling around in your cranium. And <laughs> by the time it finally is excreted by your liver and your kidneys, you know, at um, late in the morning on a Saturday morning after a Friday night of some booze, your brain then says, okay, not only am I going to go on and finally now get some REM sleep because I've washed out the alcohol, I'm going to try and get back some of the REM sleep that I've lost in the middle of the night. And it's what's called a REM sleep rebound effect. And so the REM sleep that you have on those late morning post-alcohol binges can be really intense. And that's why you have these really strange, intense, bizarre dreams. Now, that's not to suggest, however, that your brain gets back all of the REM sleep that it has lost. In fact, 
it gets back very little of it, but it tries to get back some of it at least. So that's why you can sometimes have that sort of strange experience. But let me stop there, and I'm happy to tell you more about sort of the functions of of dream sleep that we've discovered. Okay, no, go ahead. Let's do that now because we're on it. Yeah, so, well, dream sleep seems to actually provide at least two different benefits. The first is creativity. And what we now realize happens during dream sleep is that it gathers in all of the information that we've been learning during the day. And it starts to collide and fuse that new information with all of the back catalog of information that you've acquired across your lifespan. So it's a little bit like um, group therapy for memories. And it's this informational alchemy at night, this blending of all of these memory ingredients together in this sort of incredible knowledge marinade. And as a consequence, you wake up the next morning with a revised mind-wide web of associations. And it's a brain that is then capable of divining solutions to previously impenetrable problems. And it's the reason that no one has ever told you that you should stay awake on a problem. And in fact, what I've discovered is that in every language that I've inquired about to date, from sort of French to uh, Swahili, that phrase sleeping on a problem seems to exist. And what that means is that this creative benefit of sleep this sort of inspirational benefit of sleep transcends cultural boundaries. It's common across the globe. Um, now, we, um, the, the, the British, we would say you sleep on a problem. Someone told me that I think, and I don't speak French very well, but the French translation is much closer to you sleep with a problem. Mm. The British sleep on a problem. French sleep with a problem. I think it says so much about the romantic difference between the British uh, and, and the French. But let's let's not let's not go there. I think the the <laughs> second um, beautiful benefit of REM sleep, something that we've done a lot of work on is that it provides emotional first aid. REM sleep is a form of overnight therapy. And we now understand that REM sleep will take difficult, painful, sometimes even traumatic experiences. And REM sleep acts almost like a nocturnal soothing balm. And it will take the sharp edges off those difficult emotional experiences so that we come back the next day and those experiences are no longer as emotional. We've taken the sting out of those painful experiences. So in other words, it's not time that heals all wounds, but it's time during sleep and specifically during dream sleep that provides that form of emotional convalescence, as it were. And I think it's why um, there's a wonderful entrepreneur, um, E. Joseph Kosman, who once said, the best bridge between despair and hope is a good night of sleep. Wow. And that's exactly what we're discovering. Oh, I love that. And I've also heard you say in the past that it, we don't necessarily ever, um, it's not that we can't remember. No, we may well not be able to remember our dreams, but that doesn't mean we ever forget our dreams. That's true. It's a wacky theory that right now I have no evidence to support but I've got the experiments designed, I just need to do them, which is the following. You know, many of us wake up from our dream sleep and sometimes we, we don't remember anything at all. 
other times we wake up and we think, oh, I was having a dream. What was it? And the harder you try to remember it, the less likely it is that you will. And then you think, okay, I've forgotten the dream. It's gone. It's not there anymore. But then several days later, you know, you're walking through the, um, the grocery store, you're in Sainsbury's and all of a sudden you see a label and it triggers the unlocking of the dream memory. And you just get this recollection. It comes flooding back. What that tells me is that that memory of the dream was there all along, but you just lost the IP address to it. <laughs> so in other words, the memory was available, but it wasn't accessible. Now, if that's true, what it would suggest is that our brain stores maybe every single dream that we have. And if that's true, what we know from brain science is something called implicit memory, memories that we're not conscious of, but are present in our brain and shape and change the decisions and the actions that we perform in the world. Since that is true, would it then be possible to suggest that our dreams, even though we don't consciously have access to them, are constantly influencing every choice and every action that we make in our lives? That's an interesting idea, I think. It's a very interesting idea. Um, on that, what do you think about when Bertrand Russell said, he said that often if he had an issue in life, he would think about it enough in order to feed it into his subconscious and then leave it there and let that get to work and compute it for him. And this is, you know, there's another theory, you know, linked to this, to, to that, that, that sort of um, theory that, you know, we don't have ideas, ideas have us, but actually we mm -hmm. programmed the chance of them happening sometime in the recent or distant past. There is actually some really good evidence for this now. So it's an it's the idea of non-conscious processing that once you think you've finished sort of deliberating, you know, what sort of couch you want to buy at IKEA and you've looked at all of the different factors, you know, uh, the fabric, the cost, you know, the comfort level, you know, maybe there's 15 different factors or you're going to purchase a car and there's all of these things. It's very hard to juggle all of those things in your conscious mind. It's like trying to sort of spin all of these plates. At some point, it's just not going to happen. But your non-conscious brain has a much broader scope of informational capacity. And it is much better at processing complex information. So Bertram was absolutely correct. Load up the information consciously and then sort of put it to the side, almost lock the cabinet, as it were, and just let it do its thing and then come back and you will make a better, more accurate choice. It's been tested in science. Talk about this fun fact, everyone. Fun fact alert. These are all fun facts, but this is a super fun fact. Our bodies need to be paralyzed when we sleep in order for us to dream safely. That's right. Many of us don't realize that when we go into dream sleep, um, our brain is incredibly active. In fact, some parts of your brain are up to 30% more active when you're in dream sleep than when you're awake. But what's also paradoxical is that downstairs in your body, you're completely paralyzed. You are locked into a physical incarceration. 
And there's a part of your brainstem that just before you go into REM sleep will send a signal all the way down your spinal cord to paralyze all of the voluntary skeletal muscles, all of the things that we sort of deliberately move. Now, don't worry. The involuntary muscles, such as breathing and your heart, they're unaffected. Otherwise, you'd be popped out the gene pool very quickly. But the voluntary muscles, they fall dead. They fall limp. And this is a way that your brain, as you said, paralyzes your body so your mind can dream safely. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the later in life that we go, particularly as, uh, oh, as guys, no that part of the brain can start to deteriorate. And so we can start to act out our dreams because that mechanism fails. And it also happens not just in human beings, we see this in animals. As dogs age, for example, that same mechanism will start to break down and you'll start to see them almost acting out their dreams. And it's the very best evidence that we have right now that animals may also be dreaming. And you you sit between two stools, don't you, on why why mother nature wants us to dream if if there's a reason for it at all because it may well be that there isn't a reason and you have this lovely light bulb um analogy don't you with that but you hope that she she does want us to dream for a reason there is a reason behind it. it's not just a side effect that's right there is a possibility that well we know that we need this thing called rapid eye movement sleep in fact um rats will die almost as quickly from selective rem sleep deprivation as they will from total sleep deprivation. So we know that a lack of sleep is fatal. Uh, those studies were done in rats. Um, that's total sleep deprivation, but REM sleep deprivation will kill a rat almost as quickly as total sleep deprivation. So REM sleep itself, the state from which we dream, is essential. It's a biological um, ingredient of life. But that doesn't mean that dreaming, which sits on top of REM sleep, is necessarily useful. And the analogy would be a light bulb. The way, the reason that we create this apparatus called a light bulb is to produce this thing called light. And so it turns out, however, when you produce light in that specific way, you also produce heat. Now, the reason you created the light bulb was never to produce heat. It's just what happens when you create light in that way. And the same thing could be true of dreaming that when you construct a brain to produce this critical thing called REM sleep, as a spin-off, as an epiphenomenal byproduct, you also get this thing called dreaming. Dreaming is the heat of the light bulb. It's not necessary, it's not important. But we don't believe that that's true any longer because what we've discovered for that mental health benefit is that it's not just important to be dreaming, it's critical to be dreaming of the specific events and emotional experiences of that trauma itself. If you're not dreaming of those specific events, you don't get clinical resolution to things such as depression and anxiety. So we really believe dream sleep is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You also need to have REM sleep plus this conscious act and experience of dreaming itself to get that overnight therapy. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm not a scientist, obviously, but there is a difference between the light bulb uh, and REM sleep and dreaming. So the, the light bulb producing heat is one thing, and REM sleep producing as a p potential obsolete side effect, dreaming is different because we made the light bulb and Mother Nature 
produces REM sleep. And I think we may be the fly in that particular ointment. <laughs> in in lots of ways. Um, and, you know, dream sleep, by the way, just as an aside, it's a pretty spectacular state because last night, everyone listening, uh, as long as you slept last night, um, you all became flagrantly psychotic. And before you reject my sort of diagnosis of your nighttime psychosis, let me give you five good reasons. Firstly, last night when you went into dream sleep, you started to see things which were not there. So you were hallucinating. Second, you believe things that couldn't possibly be true. So you were delusional. Third, you became confused about time, place, and person. It's what we call disorientation. Fourth, you had these wildly fluctuating emotions, something that psychiatrists call being affectively labile. And then how wonderful, you woke up and you forgot most, if not all of that dream experience. So you're suffering from amnesia. <laughs> if you were to experience any one of those five things while you're awake, you would be seeking psychiatric intervention. <laughs> but for reasons that we're only now just starting to understand, it seems to be a beautiful and perfectly normal biological and psychological process at night. It's absolutely crackers. The more you think about it, either the, the less important you have to regard it or i don't know because it's it's a it's a it's a wormhole that there it's infinite isn't it i mean what, what how do you you know more about it than most people on the planet yet how much from a percentage point of view do you think you actually know about it i you know as a scientist you are always ignorant um you are always a student of the discipline that you're examining um I would say that we've learned more about sleep in the previous um, 30 years than we have in the previous 300. That's certainly true. Um, we used to ask 30 or 40 years ago, why do we sleep? And the crass answer that we had was that we sleep to cure sleepiness, <laughs> which is the fatuous equivalent of saying, well, you eat to cure hunger. Well, that tells you nothing about the nutritional physiological benefits of food. But that's where we were with sleep science 30 or 40 years ago. Now, based on tens of thousands of research studies, we've had to upend the question. Instead, we've had to ask, is there any major system within your body or major physiological operation of your mind that isn't wonderfully enhanced by sleep when you get it or demonstrably impaired when you don't get enough? And the answer right now seems to be no. So before we leave dreaming, if you don't mind, uh, two more questions. First one is, you know, if you if we dream in the brain, do we a do we dream in the brain? Because, you know, then there's the mind, isn't there? So if you have a thought, you know, you the neuroscientists can't we can't find thoughts. You, they can't be seen in the brain. Activity can be seen in the brain, different forms of activity, in different parts of the brain. But you can't find a thought. A thought's never been found. So do you think we dream in the brain or do we dream with the mind? To me, those things are one and the same. So the mind is a consequence of the brain. No brain, <laughs> no mind. Um, now, you can have a brain that, unfortunately, through neurological insult, loses a conscious mind. Um, but the, the, the converse isn't true. So to me, I usually don't make that, that distinction. But it's a very interesting question, which is, 
can we start to, with brain imaging technology, and we do uh, this type of work where we put people inside of brain scanners and we let them fall asleep and we let them dream, can we start to understand what parts of their brain are lighting up as they're dreaming? And we've understood that very well. We understand that these visual areas of the brain light up, um, the motor structures of your brain light up, the emotional and memory centers light up, which all fits with this idea of dreaming. You know, are they filled with past memories? Yes. Are they visual? Yes. Are they motoric? Yes, you're moving around. Are they emotional? They absolutely are. But there's another part of the brain that goes in the complete opposite direction, which is completely shut down and taken offline. And it's a part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's the most evolved part of your brain. It sits directly above your eyeballs. It's almost like the CEO of your brain. And that part of the brain is normally involved in rational conscious decision making. Now, when we go into dream sleep, that part of the brain just, you know, takes a nosedive like a dart into the ground. And the brain all of a sudden erupts into this bizarre, erratic, irrational activity. In other words, it's a little bit like the prison and the prison guards, the prefrontal cortex, um, they've gone. The prison guards are away and the prisoners are running amok. That's the brain state of dream sleep. So that tells us how are dreams perhaps are formed? Why are they of the way that they are? Why are they strange? But why are they emotional? We understand that from a brain perspective. The scarier prospect, however, is can I actually now start to look into your brain with my brain scanner and not only understand how it is that you're dreaming visually, motorically, but can I even predict what you're dreaming? And recently, a colleague um, here at my university um, developed a remarkable technology. He was able to do mind reading with an MRI scan. So they would show you these kind of YouTube videos as you watch them inside of the brain scanner. And using just the brain activity from the brain scanner, he could reconstruct what your brain was looking at. And you can place these two videos side by side. The one that he reconstructed from just brain activity alone and the video you're actually looking at on YouTube. Now, the one he reconstructed looks like a, you know, a 240 DPI video on YouTube versus the, you know, 1080 high definition one. But it's very clear that he was able to reconstruct and understand what was going on in your brain. Uh, even though he knew nothing about what you were looking at, he knows what you were looking at. The question then becomes, what happens if we switch back on that technology as you're dreaming and we start to peer into your dreaming brain and I gain access to what you're dreaming? That becomes an ethical issue because don't forget when you're dreaming for the most part, unless you're lucid dreaming, you don't have volitional control over what you dream. It's not your fault that you're dreaming of maybe doing something that's illegal or something that's not pleasant. Now, do I have the right as a scientist now with technology to start to gain access to something that you are not culpable for, you know, non mere culpa, you, you, you're not responsible for what you dream. So, so we're now getting to the stage where brain science becomes an ethical science. Oh my goodness me, we're teetering on the brink, aren't we, in so many aspects we are, of life we are. And, and knowing, <laughs> knowing a bit too much. Um, let's now 
Let's now focus on them. For people listening, we are going to get on to uh, Matthew's super tips, of course, on how to sleep better. But we just—it's a—it's a long old build-up. This. So, let's first of all um, tell people about the difference an hour's sleep can have twice a year, as far as daylight saving is concerned, because this is one of—I re- I do remember this, Matthew. It's been three years, but I will never forget this particular fun fact. So. Yeah, lots of the experiments that we can talk about with things like cancer or diabetes or Alzheimer's disease, you know, some of these, we do these experiments where we bring you in for a week and we put you on a limited constraint of sleep, let's say four or five hours a night. And we can see a marked risk in your sort of change in your diabetic profile or your blood pressure um, or the buildup of Alzheimer's disease, sticky toxic proteins in your brain. But many people then say, well, yeah, I know, but that's four hours of sleep a night. That's not really how I'm sleeping. Maybe I'm short just one hour. And how much difference does an hour make? Turns out it's a lot because you're right. There is a global experiment that's performed on about 1.6 billion people across 70 countries twice a year called daylight savings time. And what we've discovered is that in the spring, when you lose just one hour of sleep, the following day, we see a 24% increase in relative heart attack rates. And in the autumn, when we gain an hour of sleep, there is a 21% reduction in heart attacks. And which just, you know, isn't that incredible and amazing? And you see exactly the same profile for things such as road traffic accidents on our, on our streets. We see the same profile for suicide rates. Even people here in the United States, they've looked at the harshness of the sentencing of federal judges. <laughs> and what they found is that if you are <laughs> unlucky enough to be sentenced oh, no. on the day after the time change in the spring, you will receive a harsher sentence because that judge has had one hour less of sleep and they're in a worse mood and they punish you more strongly. And so, you know, if you've had a, if if you've committed a crime and you're going to get sentenced, make sure it's on the autumn time switch and you know, you may get, um, you know, 18 months rather than 24, but, um, that's a strange thing for me to say. I'm, I'm yeah, a scientist. Yeah. Or, or, or just don't commit the crime in the first place. And you sleep I would better. Much you sleep prefer better that. anyway. Of course you would. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and that's that's that sort of um, uh, microcosm is repeated, isn't it? In in certain um, certain research that has been carried out following kids' school starting times being put back an hour. Um, you're a great believer and you're you're a promoter of the fact that kids should go to school as late well much later in the morning than they do in most of the world you know but obviously there are childcare issues with that and mum and dads have to go to work but where it has changed and has been pushed back not only the kids benefit but tell us about the road traffic accident aspect to that particular um, experiment Yeah, that data is quite staggering. So that what we found is that when we shift a school start times to a later point, um, either by 45 minutes or by an hour, firstly, we see academic grades increase, behavioral problems decrease, truancy rates decrease, and psychological and psychiatric issues in those kids also decrease. But you're right, something even more remarkable happened in that story of later school start times. And it was that the life expectancy of those kids increased. And you may be thinking, well, how on earth do you measure that? How, what, what are you talking about? 
Well, the leading cause of death in um, late stage adolescent teens is actually not suicide, that's second, it's road traffic accidents. And here, sleep matters enormously. And I'll give you one example that happened here in America in a place called Teton County in Wyoming. They shifted their school start times from um, 7.30 in the morning um, to um, 8, I think it was 8.55. And the only thing that was more impressive than the extra hour that those kids reported getting was the drop in car accidents. There was a 70% reduction in vehicle crashes that following year. Now, to put that in context for people, the advent of ABS technology in cars, anti-lock brake systems that prevent your wheels locking up under hard braking, that dropped accident rates by somewhere between 20 to 25%, and some people deemed it a revolution. But here is a simple biological thing, getting enough sleep, that will drop accident rates by up to 70%. So if our goal as educators truly is to educate and not risk lives in the process, then I think we are failing our children in a quite spectacular manner with this incessant model of early school start times. And you've been saying this for a long time now. Is anybody listening? People are starting, and it's not, uh, you know, I'm just a tiny little piece in this in this communication puzzle, but schools are starting to listen and schools are starting to change. In fact, um, there was a, a push um, in uh, the UK to try and get a bill that would have schools starting no later than 10 o'clock in the morning, which is about the right time, particularly for um, teenagers. And by the way, it's not their fault. It's not that teenagers are just being lazy by wanting to wake up later. We know that there is a predetermined, genetically dictated biological shift in their 24-hour rhythm. They shift forward in time. They want to go to bed later and they want to wake up later. So asking your teenager to wake up, let's say, at 7 o'clock in the morning is probably the equivalent of asking you, the parent, to wake up at 5.30 in the morning and act with good grace, good humor, and start to learn effectively. <laughs> and it's just not going to happen. And that's the reason that we're making this push. So people are starting to listen. Schools are starting to change. There is still some of that mindset that, you know, sleep is, sleep has an image problem. <laughs> we associate getting sufficient sleep with being lazy or slothful. And that's a terrible disservice because if we try to educate our youth on too little sleep, then we're going to educate them amnesic. That's the, the data. So things are starting to change, but it's a slow change. And I understand why, just as you mentioned there before, this is not a simple problem. Parents need to get to work themselves. So kids need to get to school earlier, perhaps, than their parents. And we need to think about then kids, you know, coming home at a time when their parents can then pick them up when the parents have finished work. So it's a non-trivial issue. I know it's a hard problem. But in all truth, we've been able to put people onto the moon. And that was a difficult problem. I think we can solve the school start time structure and the school start time schedule. Yeah, and like you say, for three and a half million years, you know, give or take the last hundred or maybe even five hundred at a stretch, we were fine with sleep. We were doing okay. We've just, we've, we've, you know, we've sort of um, 
lulled ourselves or fallen for our, the, the seduction of our own inventions that have taken us away from what mm. we need to becoming, you know, um, collectively underslept. And there are some very famous short sleepers that have gone down in history as wearing, you know, um, four-hour sleep as a badge of honour, but that's not ended well either, has it? It hasn't, no, and you're right. You know, there was a survey done um, here uh, that showed that back in 1942, uh, the average adult was sleeping 7.9 hours a night. Uh, there was some survey data demonstrating now in America that number is down to about 6 hours and 30 minutes. Uh, the UK, not much better, about 6 hours and 49 minutes. Japan, even worse, 6 hours and um, 21 minutes is the average. By the way, these are the averages which mean that there's a large proportion of that distribution of people who are even below that average, who are desperately trying to survive on less than six hours of sleep a night. And we know that the number of people who can do that without showing any impairment rounded to a whole number and expressed as a percent of a population is zero. <laughs> I know you're going to say um, that. That's your favorite so, line, isn't it? Such a good know, line. <laughs> but coming back to your point, you know, we, we have become desperately dislocated from this thing called a full night of sleep through many different reasons. You know, this image problem, we've got issues through modernity, um, you know, the electrification of the night. Thomas Edison, you know, is has some th responsibility in terms of how we're sleeping now before Edison and his electric light company. Um, you know, we didn't control when it was light and when it was dark. And with the invention and popularization of the light bulb, all of a sudden we controlled the night. And that was a remarkable shift. And then the wave of technology um, and then, you know, caffeine, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is this sort of shift in the, the amount of sleep uh, that we've been getting. And the elastic band of sleep deprivation seems to be able to stretch only so far before it snaps. And I think we are seeing now some of those consequences. And, of course, there have been some unfortunate famous cases of, um, you know, yeah. Alzheimer's related, maybe related to, to, to lack of sleep. And I know you've talked about mm. uh, Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who used to sort of, they used to almost have a friendly competition on who could sleep the least and rule the world. Yeah, yeah, they were very vocal and, and as you said, proud. They would wear the badge of sleep deprivation, um, you know, in an honour fashion. Um, now, we actually don't fully understand whether whether that was really the case or not you know it could have been a good pr um stint you know to sort of make sure that you are the iron woman and you're impenetrable and you're superhuman but let's assume that that wasn't the case let's assume that both of them were just trying to survive on four or five hours of sleep a night they seem to operate fine they ran you know um, remarkable um countries now depending on your politics you may or may not um agree with that um but what was unfortunate is that both of them went on to uh, succumb to the disease of Alzheimer. And we now know that the relationship between a lack of sleep and your risk for the development of Alzheimer's disease is not simply just an association, it's causal. Um, firstly, we know that people who are sleeping less than six hours have a far greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. People who have sleep disorders also have an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. But that's just associational. That's just those things correlate with each other. But now we've got the causal evidence. What we've discovered is that if you bring someone into the laboratory and you deprive them of just one night of sleep 
or even you deprive them of just their deep sleep, the next day there is an immediate escalation of these sticky Alzheimer's toxic proteins circulating in their bloodstream, circulating in their cerebrospinal fluid, which is sort of like the WD-40 bathing the brain. And even now with brain scanning technology, we can see an immediate buildup of your Alzheimer's proteins the next day after just one night of no sleep. And so those are causal manipulations. So if a lack of sleep increases the buildup of Alzheimer's toxic proteins in your brain, then what is it when we get good sleep that prevents that? And a discovery was made several years ago, which was spectacular. This group at the University of Rochester in America, they discovered that there was a cleansing system in the brain. It's called the glymphatic system. But this cleansing system in your brain is not always switched on in high flow volume. The time when your brain actually gets the chance to do this power cleanse is not when you're awake. It's when you are in deep sleep. Because when you are awake with all of the metabolic activity that is wakefulness, wakefulness from a metabolic perspective is low level brain damage and sleep is that sanitary salvation. And this cleansing system will wash away all of those metabolic pieces of detritus, some of which are these Alzheimer's proteins. So it's a case of good night, sleep clean. And if you're not getting the sleep that you need, no wonder those Alzheimer's disease proteins start to build up. And that's why it becomes like compounding interest on a loan. You're consistently night after night escalating those proteins, we believe, and we've done a lot of work in this area. Now, I think this is hopeful because here finally is something that we, unlike many of the other factors that we know contribute to Alzheimer's, such as genetics or the deterioration of your brain, we can't do anything about that right now. But we can do something about sleep. And with sleep, can we shift from a model of late stage Alzheimer's treatment to a model of midlife prevention. By people getting better sleep and prioritizing sleep, can we as scientists help people to bend the arrow of Alzheimer's disease risk down on itself and shift from a model of um, sick care, which is what we do now with Alzheimer's disease, to a model of health care, to a model of prevention? That is my real hope now with our research. And it's no coincidence, is it, that we're getting less sleep than ever before and there's more dementia and Alzheimer's around than ever before. I mean, that's pretty obvious even to me with half a brain cell. Yes, I think, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to suggest that Alzheimer's disease is simply a sleep disorder. It's what we call a multifactorial problem. There are many things that collide and coincide to instigate ultimately this thing called Alzheimer's disease. But is sleep one of the missing pieces in the explanatory puzzle of aging and Alzheimer's disease? Absolutely. I think now that data is quite solid. All right. So one more set, one more setup here uh, before we move on to the next chapter, which is um, obesity. Um, the fact that we're more likely to be uh, suffer from ob ob um, obesogenic uh, factors if we get less sleep and also something we stumbled upon a few months ago on the show which is this whole thing about if you're fasting um, and you fast in the morning and eat in the afternoon you get fatter from the same calorie 
after midday than you do before. Can you talk to that, mm -hmm. please, for a bit? Yeah, so I'll, t I'll take the, the second one uh, first. So there does seem to be some evidence that the way that our body is designed to treat food is not the same across the entirety of the day. So in other words, let's say that I give you, you know, a nice bowl of oatmeal and it's the same bowl of oatmeal, but I give it to you at eight o'clock in the morning at midday or eight o'clock in the evening or 10 p.m. in the evening. The way that your body is able to process that, particularly from the standpoint of having a spike in blood sugar, which is bad. You don't want to have um, a prolonged high level of blood sugar because that can set you on a path towards what we call type 2 diabetes. Well, it turns out that your body seems to be much better at controlling the blood sugar consequences of that meal in the earlier part of the day relative to the late evening part of the day. And this is because of what we call your circadian rhythm. So your body has this 24-hour rhythm and that controls lots of different things including your wake sleep schedule, but it also controls other things such as your body temperature, um, lots of different hormones. It even controls um, your urine volume production. Um, you're welcome. Um, but it also <laughs> controls um, things such as the hormones that regulate your blood sugar. And that's why you know some people have suggested when it comes to eating, you want to eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and then dinner like a pauper. Now, I will say, however, that there has been some very recent evidence pushing back against that. And they found that there isn't necessarily as strong a relationship in terms of the timing of your food as some people have previously shown in animals, in rats or in mice, that when it comes to humans, it's not quite yet that clear. So, I think the jury is maybe still a little bit out on that, but certainly eating vast amounts of food right before you go to bed, that's not a good idea. No, that's not a good idea. But coming back to sleep, a lack of sleep will set you on a path towards what we call a more obesogenic profile. In other words, you're going to gain weight if you're not getting the sleep that you need. Firstly, what we found is that if you put someone, let's say just uh, sleeping on four or five hours a night for five nights, they will start to eat more, somewhere between two to 300 extra calories each and every day. What's striking is that if you give them a full meal and then you sort of give them access to a full finger buffet sort of, of options afterwards, they start to overeat even after they've had a full meal, suggesting that they don't seem to be full. And this is that sort of thing where people are saying to me, look, you know, when I'm tired and I haven't been sleeping well, I, I do seem to be more hungry. I seem to sort of, you know, eat more and I do eat more of the wrong foods. Um, I, you know, I'm going for the junk food. What's going on? And we now understand what's going on. Firstly, when you are not getting enough sleep, there are two appetite hormones that go awry. One of them is called leptin. The other is called ghrelin. Now, leptin is the hormone that tells your brain, okay, you are full, you're satisfied with your food, you don't want to eat anymore. Ghrelin does the opposite. When ghrelin is released, it says, no, 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 you are not satisfied with your food. You are still hungry, go and eat more food. 
Now, when you are not getting sufficient sleep, the amount of leptin, which is the don't eat hormone, that goes down, that is impaired. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, that is actually increased when you are underslept. And so overall, your appetite will increase by as much as 30%. And as a consequence, you will start to eat excessive amounts of food, more food than you are burning. Because people will say to me, well, yeah, if I'm not sleeping, then I'm awake and therefore I'm more active. So surely I'm burning more calories. Well, yes, you burn a few more calories when you're awake versus when you're asleep. But sleep is actually a very metabolically active process. There's not much difference. So you overeat, but what's also interesting is what you eat. It's not just that you eat more of everything. It's that you eat more of the heavy hitting stodgy carbohydrates, such as, you know, um, pizza or bread or pasta. And you also go for more simple sugars, chocolate, ice cream, etc rather than reaching over sort of for, you know, leafy greens and a handful of, you know, healthy nuts or that sort of serving of salmon. So not only do you eat more, but you eat more of the foods that are going to pack on more mass. And the final component of this is that even if you are dieting, but you're not getting sufficient sleep, unfortunately, 70% of the weight that you lose will come from lean muscle mass and not fat. In other words, when you are underslept, your body becomes stingy in giving up its fat. So you lose what you want to keep, which is your muscle, and you keep what you want to lose, which is your fat. I didn't know and that. That's a great that's oh, why, Yeah, that's why you, you shift over. Um, and there's an evolutionary mechanism for this, by the way. One of the few times, now I should say, Human beings are the only species that we know that will deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent good reason. But there are examples in the wild where some animals under extreme circumstances will start to undergo sleep deprivation. The principal one is when they are in a state of starvation. And at that point, the brain says, oh my goodness, wherever you've been foraging for food is not enough because you're starving. So we're going to keep you awake for a little bit longer so you can forage in a broader perimeter to try and find more food. And under those conditions, when you are underslept, it goes into preservation mode. It says, okay, I'm happy to lose this thing called muscle because the most energetically efficient thing that I've got to try and keep me alive is fat. Fat has more than twice the calories per gram than protein or carbohydrate. And your muscles are mostly protein. So the body will start burning your protein, your muscle, long before it burns the fat. And that's why dieting becomes ineffective when you're not getting sufficient sleep. It's a fool's errand. Oh my God. <laughs> right. um, sex. Okay, so the effect of too little not quite sleep. now, Chris, but thank you. You're very <laughs> kind. Uh, we're a little bit distanced too, but uh, I appreciate it. It's all in the mind. Um, so <laughs> the, the effects of uh, lack of sleep on sex. Let's let's go mm. there. Let, let's let's stay on the negative before we get on the positive. <laughs> yeah. So we also know that, um, firstly, 
Um, guys who are limited to, let's say, just four to five hours of sleep for one week will have a level of testosterone, which is that of someone 10 years their senior. So in other words, a lack of sleep will age a man by a decade in terms of that critical aspect of wellness and virility. We also know that there is an association that um, on average, the less an individual male reports sleeping, the smaller their testicles. Um, I often will describe that when I'm going into these sort of, you know, big, heavy hitting uh, sort of sleep machismo companies uh, where the guys are saying, you know, I, I, I'm fine on five hours of sleep. I, I've learned to deal with it. Yeah, and when you mention, yeah. yeah, when yeah. you mentioned that, you know, well, should we all go into the bathroom and we can um, sort of r relax our belts and, and, and solve this right now? So we know that um, association. We also know that men who are underslept um, the sperm are also less motile and they also have more deformities. And it's not just men. We also see similar reproductive impairments in females. Females who are underslept or who have a disrupted sleep cycle will also have a disrupted menstrual cycle. They have a higher risk of um, miscarriage. We also know that underslept women will have lower rates of something called follicular stimulating hormone, which is a critical hormone that's part of the ovulatory regulatory cycle. So in other words, if you have a couple who is trying to conceive and have a family, but they're underslept on both of those sort of sides of the equation, it's two strikes against them. Um, so that that profile of sex hormone regulation is not going to mean that you are sort of very enamored uh, with your partner necessarily and wanting to have a stronger physical intimate uh, relationship. Um, but we also know that when uh, couples are sleeping better, and sometimes, by the way, this requires a sleep divorce, where couples sleep in separate locations. Now, there is a stigma to this as well, of course, which is that if you're not sleeping together, then maybe you're not sleeping together. But the opposite is true, <laughs> that some couples, um, and this is not a one size fits all, for some people sleeping together is wonderful. It creates a sense of security and intimacy and people sleep better. But there is a considerable portion of people who either report, if you ask them anonymously, that they don't go to bed in the same location or they go to bed together, but then they wake up in different locations. And when they have this sleep divorce, it can save them from having a real one. And in fact, the opposite is true. Their sexual and their intimacy actually improves because finally they are getting better sleep. Fascinating. Um, now let's talk about practice not making perfect but it's got a better chance if you sleep so even elite elite athletes so so if they train they have a training regime training schedule they finish training at like say four o'clock in the afternoon or seven o'clock at night or whatever um and they they you know they've done what they need to do but the advantage doesn't really kick in until the next day as long as they've had enough sleep so tell us about that so uh, a couple of years ago we started to do studies looking at sleep and memory and learning and we would teach people um, not just sort of textbook facts, but we'd also have them learn these motor skills that just as you said, elite athletes exquisitely refine over a career. 
these motor skills are also used in musicianship. They're used in, you know, if you develop surgical procedures, flying a plane, all of these th things involve what we call motor skill learning. Now, there is this notion in motor skill learning um, that practice makes perfect. That's what your music teacher would probably tell you. That's what, you know, the athletic coach would tell you. But we discovered that that wasn't actually true, that when you learn these motor skills, yes, you get better. But then if you come back the next day, having had a night of sleep on it, you are even better than where you were when you finish practicing the day before. In fact, your motor skill speed and accuracy is improved by somewhere between 20 to 30 percent across a night of sleep. And it really is across a night of sleep. You don't see equivalent benefits across a waking day. So in other words, um, it's time during sleep that is actually enhancing these memories, which is to say that it's not practice that makes perfect. It's practice with a night of sleep that leads to motor skill perfection. And I think that's the reason now why so many of these elite athletes are waking up to the importance of sleep. You know, sleep is perhaps the greatest legal performance enhancing drug that too few athletes are abusing enough of. And if you speak to people like LeBron James, the famous basketball player here, he will sleep on average somewhere between 11 to 12 hours each day. He does about a 10 hour uh, bout at night and then um, he's able to get about um, an hour and a half of nap, uh, naps during the day. Um, we know Roger Federer, um, somewhere between 11 to 12 hours. Um, Usain Bolt, uh, he's uh, at least nine and a half hours. I believe he broke one of his world records um, and he had only been awake for about 40 minutes after taking a nap. And then he just woke up and blasted the world record. So it's not just about their motor skills, of course. It's also about the preparation of the body. If you're going into that athletic performance um, sort of arena and you are well slept, you are far better able to perform that physical motor routine behavior. But on the back end, any athlete will tell you it's not just about the performance on the day. It's about how well you recover. And that's where sleep actually is essential as well. Oh, it's so it's so fascinating, Matthew. Um, I am. We, we'll have to get on to because we're <coughs> excuse me. We're pushed for time, but I suppose we'll have to get on to how we sleep better now. Um, there's so many more follow up questions, so we'll keep going until you run out of time. But I I see here on your lovely bit of paper that you sent us via um, whatever, however it came. Uh, point number. 13, which is what people are screaming at their earbuds for now. Five tips to sleep better tonight. Here we go. Ta-da! <laughs> I feel like it should be a drum roll. Uh, and then my drab voice making people lose the will to live. Um, but here goes. Uh, the five tips. The first is regularity. Um, try to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, no matter whether it's the weekday or the weekend because regularity is king and it will anchor your sleep and improve the quantity and the quality of your sleep. There is a 24 hour clock that sits deep within your brain and it expects that regularity. And when you give it the regularity, it responds with better sleep. The second thing is darkness. 
We are a dark deprived society in this modern era. And we need darkness to release a hormone at night called melatonin. And that melatonin helps time the healthy onset of your sleep. So the trick here would be not only try to stay away from those um, laptop screens and those phones in the last hour before bed, but in the last hour, dim down half or almost 70% of all of the lights in your home. You will be surprised at how sleepy that makes you feel. Why? Because it's removing the breaks from melatonin and it's starting to be released and it gets you sleepy. That's a good tip too. The third tip is temperature. Keep it cool because your brain and your body need to drop their core temperature by about one degree Celsius in order for you to fall asleep and then stay asleep soundly across the night. And this is the reason that you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot because too cold is taking you in the right temperature direction for good sleep. So I would aim for a bedroom temperature of around about 18, 18 and a half degrees Celsius. I know it sounds cold, but cold it must be. You can put socks on if you like, that's, <laughs> that's fine. Take a hot water bottle to bed. That's lovely too. Um, by the way, this is the reason that a hot bath or um, a shower before bed works, but for the opposite reason that most of you think. When you get into a, um, a hot bath, all of the blood races to the surface of your skin from the core of your body. You get rosy cheeks and rosy skin. Then you get out of the bath and all of that heat, because it's brought to, the blood is brought to the surface of your skin, it's this huge thermal radiation, this evacuation of all of the heat from your body. So your core body temperature actually plummets. And that's why you sleep so much better. It's called the warm bath effect in sleep science, and it's real. So that's the third tip, temperature. The fourth tip is walk it out. And what I mean by this is, don't stay in bed awake for long periods of time, let's say longer than 20, uh, 25 minutes. If you've been trying to fall asleep and it's not working for you, or you've been trying to fall back asleep and it's not working after that amount of time, don't stay in bed because otherwise your brain starts to learn a curious association, which is that your bedroom and your bed becomes a trigger to your brain to say, ah, this is the place where you should be awake, not asleep. And that's why people will sometimes say to me, look, I'm falling asleep on the settee watching telly and then I get into bed and I'm wide awake and I don't know why. And it's because your brain has learned this association of your bed being this place of wakefulness and you need to break that association. So just get out of bed. It's okay. Realize that tonight is just not your night. And everyone has a bad night of sleep. I have plenty of bad nights of sleep. And then go into um, a dim room and a different room. And in dim light, just read a book or do some stretching or do a meditation and only return to bed when you are sleepy. And there's no time limit for that. And that way your brain will gradually relearn the association that this thing called your bed is the place of good sleep. And so I think the analogy I often give is, you know, we, we would never sit at the dinner table waiting to get hungry. So why would we lie in bed waiting to get sleepy? And the answer is that we shouldn't. 
the final two things, uh, we, one we've mentioned already is alcohol. Just try to be mindful of that. Um, you know, the advice, if I had to give it, would be um, go to the pub in the morning and that way the, all of the alcohol is out your system by the <laughs> evening. But uh, I would never say that okay. on, on, your, on your podcast. Um, and then caffeine. You know, caffeine is what we call a psychoactive stimulant. Everyone knows it um, wakes them up. But there are two hidden features that may be surprising to you about caffeine. Firstly, it um, its duration of action. Almost a quarter of the caffeine is still in your brain after 10 to 12 hours. In other words, if you have a cup of coffee at midday, um, a quarter of that is still in your brain at midnight. So it would be the equivalent of getting into bed at midnight and just before you turn the light out, you swig a quarter of a cup of Starbucks mm, or Costa God. coffee, and then you hope for a good night of sleep and it's probably not going to be uh, the case. Second problem with caffeine is that even if you can, even if you're one of those people and people will tell me this, I can have an espresso with dinner and I fall asleep and I stay asleep, so I'm fine. That may not be true. Even if you can fall asleep and stay asleep, when there is caffeine in your system, it will block some of the deep sleep that you normally get. So you stay in a lighter stage of sleep. Now you don't wake up, but the next morning, you don't feel refreshed or restored by that sleep. And so you don't remember having a problem with your sleep, so you don't make the connection. You don't realize that it was the espresso causing you that unrefreshed feeling. But now you're reaching for two cups of coffee in the morning rather than one. And so goes the addiction dependency cycle. So those would be um, the tips. The last thing I would say though, Chris, is that those are tips for better sleep. But you know, it's a little bit like me being your athletic coach that I can give you all of these tips to improve your performance. But if you've got a broken ankle, none of those tips are going to help you unless we get you to, doc to a doctor to fix that broken ankle. And the same is true if you are suffering from a sleep disorder, if you're suffering from insomnia or you have heavy snoring, which can be a, a condition which is very deathly called sleep apnea. If you've got snoring or if your partner snores, go and see your GP and get treated. And none of these tips that I've given you are going to help you if you have those disorders. It's like that broken ankle. They're only going to work once we fix that broken ankle, once we've fixed your sleep disorders. All right, uh, follow up there to that, Matt. So we have cold showers in the morning. We, we um, are advocates of the Wim Hof method. So are you saying cold showers in the morning and warm showers at night? Because I cold shower at night as well, because I, I just thought that helped me. But am I doing exactly the opposite to what I should be doing? You are. Yeah. So you've got the prescription right in the former that um, cold showers in the morning seem to be activating, activates the nervous system. It's the Wim Hof method. Um, we also know that in the brain, it can stimulate something called BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is something that um, is good for your brain cells, too. So I certainly would advocate for that. I've tried it myself a little bit. Uh, some mornings I'm braver than others to try and do that. But in the evenings, you need to reverse engineer that trick. So, um, yeah, you can uh, change that back. Okay, and in a world of extremes, if I go, if I have a really hot shower, would that help me sleep more, or do, do we just stick with a warm shower or a warm bath? Warm shower, warm bath is fine. You don't need to go to the extremities. Okay, all right. 
Right, napping. There's the whole world of napping. For those of us who get up at silly o'clock in the morning, three o'clock, we'll get onto that in a moment <laughs> or two, and we'll get really personal uh, in a bit. Uh, but for those who, who nap, who, you know, rest our eyes, as my mum and dad used to say, <laughs> you know, and, and there's no lovely fe- lovelier feeling than drifting off in the afternoon. I did it today, actually. did it today. I was writing some notes for this interview, writing some scripts for something else we're doing, and I just drifted off, and it was a lovely feeling. You know, how much does that help? We know we hear these famous stories about, uh, I think you referenced Edison. Um, I've heard it about Einstein. We both confuse the two at times <laughs> to do with keys and floorboards and circadian rhythms and favorite <laughs> chairs over to you again <laughs> so naps can certainly have benefits and we've done a lot of research in this area too um, upstairs in the body naps can actually improve um, aspects of learning and memory they can certainly um, enhance your attention so you're more alert we also know that they can improve your emotional and mood stability downstairs in the body um, naps can help with your cardiovascular system they can have a lowering of your blood pressure so naps can certainly be good but naps are a double-edged sword which we need to be careful of so the first thing is that if you nap too long you can go into the deeper stages of sleep and if you wake up out of those deeper stages then you suffer something called sleep inertia where you almost feel worse after the nap for the first hour than you did beforehand because you're sort of groggy and your brain is still in that sort of deep basement of deep sleep. But the the more problematic um, thing about naps is if you are someone who is struggling with sleep. So if you have insomnia or you have difficulty with sleep, the advice is don't nap. And the reason is because from the moment that you and I and everyone else listening woke up this morning, a chemical has been building up in our brain. That chemical is called adenosine. And the more of that chemical that builds up, the sleepier that you will feel. And it's called the sleepiness chemical or sleep pressure. And then after about 16 hours of being awake, there's enough sleepiness, enough sleep pressure weighing you down that you should be able to fall asleep easily and then stay asleep. And then when we sleep, our brain gets the chance to clear away all of that sleepiness. And after about eight hours of sleep, we've cleared away 16 hours of that sleepiness chemical and we wake up feeling refreshed. What does this have to do with naps? Well, if you take a nap that's too long or too late into the day, then that nap will act almost like a pressure valve on a steam cooker. And all of a sudden, it will just release some of that sleepiness. And therefore, when it comes time for you to fall asleep at your normal bedtime, you don't feel as sleepy because you don't have that weight of sleepiness weighing you down. So napping too late into the afternoon is a little bit like snacking before a meal. It just takes the the edge off. It's exactly the same. And therefore, you're not going to feel as hungry or ready for that meal. So just be a little bit. But no problem with naps, though. If you're not struggling with sleep and you can nap regularly, naps are great. In fact, there is a suggestion that naps are the way that we were designed to sleep. We were not designed perhaps to sleep in the way that we do in the modern world, which is what we call monophasic sleep, which is trying to get one long bout throughout the night. If you study hunter-gatherer tribes whose way of life hasn't changed for thousands of years, they don't sleep the way that we do in lots of ways. The principal way, though, that comes back to naps is that they usually sleep for about six and a half, seven hours at night. And then 
in the um, early to middle of the afternoon, they have a siesta-like nap behavior, particularly in the hot summer months. And in fact, if I look at you and I've even anyone else, and you have an unusual sleep schedule, but anyone, you will have a genetically wired programmed drop in your alertness in the middle of the afternoon. So I can put these electrodes on your brain waves, uh, sorry, on your brain to measure your brain waves. And sure enough, in the middle of the afternoon, your electrical brainwave alertness patterns start to drop as if we were designed to be napping during this afternoon. It's sort of, you know, everyone comes back after lunch, you're having those meetings around the table and you get these sort of head nods, these sort of head drops that you see around the table. It's not people listening to good music. They're sort of falling prey to these little sort of microsleeps because we were instructed to nap. And it doesn't have anything to do with food, by the way. You can sort of have people not take a, a big lunch or any lunch at all, and they still have that drop in, in alertness. Um, and there are some wonderful stories about creativity that we can get to as well. But that's the sort of the skinny on naps. Um, they do come with some wonderful advantages, but just some warnings on the label uh, of the tin of naps. Yeah, I had a pal who used to open the batting for England, believe it or not. He was a cricketer, yeah. still, well, still is sort of. And because he knew, so he sort of knew when he was going to bat because he was the opener and so he knew he knew when the innings was going to begin you know uh, approximately he would have a 20 minute sleep before he went in and he would wake up and he said he had a massive advantage as far as he was concerned because he was wide awake after this yeah. 20 minute pre-innings nap and he could time it i mean how, you, that is the, that is the legal advantage that you're talking about in sports it is yeah and there is if you're going to have a nap you know, if you're trying to make up the sleep in a way that you're napping sort of Chris or the way that your sleep schedule is, if let's say that you're only able to get, you know, five hours at night, then I would probably recommend a longer nap um, in the afternoon. I wouldn't sort of time it at around sort of 50 or 60 minutes. I would go a little bit longer. I would go up to 90 minutes because your sleep cycle is about 90 minutes. Um, as we fall asleep, you go into light non-REM sleep. And then later in the nap, you will go in into that 90 minute cycle. You'll go into deep sleep. And then after about 70 or 80 minutes, you'll start to rise back up and then you'll start to have REM sleep. And so you want to get through that full cycle so that you come out the back end feeling sort of fully restored. So for you, the prescription would probably be a longer nap. But for most people who are, let's say, getting the sort of six and a half, seven hours of sleep, uh, at night, but they would like to have their nap during the day, then you can build in more of a 20 minute nap. Because at that point, you're still in usually probably the lighter stages of non-REM sleep. You're not down into that deep, deep non-REM sleep. And that's why you can wake up and you can sort of bring your brain back online in a quicker, more efficient fashion. So you really feel that precision sharpness that your cricketer friend is describing. Now, I've uh, worked a couple of times with the great and powerful Russell Brand. Now, he famously meditates before he does a TV interview, for example. He doesn't do many, uh, many at all anymore. But when he used to, you know, he would go and meditate for 20 minutes. And you, the research would be said, you know, Russell's going to meditate now. Uh, he knows his core time is at 7 o'clock to be on camera at 10 past 7. So if you can just leave him alone between 6.30 and 6.50. So what about the uh, restorative um, qualities or, or usefulness of meditation 
over or versus or along with in harmony with napping? So meditation and Russell, by the way, what a fantastic, I've never spoken. I'd love to just have a chat with him, but um, what a lovely, uh, wonderful, uh, insightful guy. But meditation is, is very interesting. Some people have suggested that in very advanced uh, meditative practice, people quote unquote need less sleep or monks who are in the um, practice will only sleep for four or five hours a night. That actually seems to be instructed by their schedule, not by necessarily them needing less sleep. However, that's not to suggest that meditation um, isn't potentially beneficial, but it doesn't seem as though meditation is a substitute for sleep. Because if I put you in a brain scanner or if I wire you up with electrodes all over your head so you look like sort of a spaghetti monster on the head, and then we look at your brain activity as you're meditating versus your brain activity as you are asleep, they are very, very different. They are not one and the same. Now, do meditation, or sorry, does meditation produce very similar health benefits to the brain and the body that sleep does? And the answer seems to be yes. But the roots by which meditation and sleep get to that same destination of good health seem to be different. They are two different mechanisms to the same beneficial profile for your brain and your body. So what about the theory that, because I, I went plant-based this year with my wife from March the 1st, and basically completely plant-based. So whole food plant-based, you know, I've, I've slipped off the wagon a bit. You know, I had a bit of cheese in September. I literally had some milk in some tea sometime uh, in October, but very little at all. And there is a theory that one of the reasons we need to sleep so long is because um, if we eat too much meat, um, you know, our, uh, our colon, our... Um, what does it call? You got your colon. Um, it, it's, it's much longer than it sh should be uh, for somebody who eats meat, and we should really be eating more vegetables. And if you don't eat meat, you don't need to be asleep as long because one of the primary reasons for us to be uh, non-conscious is to digest our food. How much does that? How much sort of gravity does that sway you one way or another? So, it is interesting. We know a lot about as we've spoken about the effects of a lack of sleep on your dietary choices and your body composition the next day. But if you reverse that, that's saying sleep impacts our food and our body. But you're asking a very different question, which is elegant. Let's reverse that. Does the food that you eat during the day change something about your sleep at night? And it is a profoundly under-researched topic. So we actually don't really have good evidence if we put people on a plant-based diet versus, um, you know, a meat-based diet or when you're in sort of ketosis or when you're undergoing prolonged periods of fasting for several days. We don't really understand what is going on with your sleep. The general thing that we know is the following, that a diet that is high in fiber and low in sugar typically promotes good sleep. We also know that if you can try not to eat too close to bed, that seems to be beneficial, just as you said, because your intestinal system needs to undergo some degree of rest and reparation when you are asleep. And if it's full of food, it can't quite get there. 
The also the other problem, especially if you're eating a higher fat content of food right before bed, is that it can cause increased acid reflux, particularly if you're eating spicy food too, and that will actually wake you up. So you'll have sleep fragmentation. We also know now there's an interesting emerging relationship between your gut microbiome. And what we found is that in those people who have a poor diet, who have as a consequence, now the gut microbiome is this wonderful set of sort of flora and fauna sort of inside of uh, all of your intestines. And it's remarkably um, powerful in terms of maintaining your health. Some really now powerful links with your mental uh, state, particularly depression and the gut microbiota. But what we found is that in those people who have um, a gut microbiome, which is imbalanced, where they have a little bit more sort of fermented uh, type of bacteria, um, they don't seem to be sleeping as well. And also, if you're not sleeping well, your gut microbiome goes further out of balance than what we recognize as the healthy profile too. So that's the best data that we have right now emerging on how your diet impacts your sleep rather than how your sleep impacts your diet. Um, as for that sort of meat versus, um, you know, going plant-based, we do not yet know. Um, I, and I would love to do those studies. They're just hard to get funded in truth. Yeah, I mean, you know, certain yogis have talked about the fact, I think it's, you know, meat eaters in the animal world have very short intestines and we have very long ones. And that would suggest that we're meant to eat things that are easy to digest because they've got further to travel down this this internal canal or river of ours that, than they have in other species. And that's going to take longer. And yogis, like, they have like four or five hours sleep, wake up completely energized. I mean, what what do you think about that? You know, I think those anecdotes are interesting, but until we have the science, we can't yeah. entertain whether they're true. But equally, someone like me cannot entertain that they are false either. Um, it could very well be likely that that's true, that there is something about that diet that, you know, for reasons that we've never truly understood, you know, can get you on a much more restricted sleep need. In truth, though, the fact that, as I said, when we looked at Homo sapiens, they seem to acquiesce to this sweet spot of somewhere between seven to nine hours. Sleep is, is a truly idiotic thing from an evolutionary perspective. <laughs> Let's make no mistake about it. Because when you are asleep, you're not finding food, you're not finding a mate, you're not reproducing, you're not caring for your young, and worse of all, you're vulnerable to predation yourself. So on any one of those grounds, but especially as a collective, there should have been a strong evolutionary pressure to sort of go against anything that is, you know, a long period of sleep. And in fact, it's once been said that if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, it's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process has ever made. Now, based on everything that we've spoken about, we've realized that Mother Nature did not make a spectacular blunder in creating this thing called a seven to nine hour sleep need in place. But if she could have found a way to get rid of even just one of those hours of sleep or two by making us non-negotiably only eat meat, I'm quite sure she would have. But that doesn't seem to be prevalent. So that's why I would favor right now against that hypothesis. But I've got no data and I must entertain the opposite as well as a scientist. All right.
let's ramp it up. So 15 minutes to go. I'm, I'm going to put a, t a timer on it now. We don't need to, but let's do it for fun. Okay, so here we go. Um, if you know somebody who's struggling with sleep and you get them in, in the secret Santa, what might you buy them that could help? So where do you sit, stand, or indeed lie on um, gravity blankets? I think there is some evidence that they can actually reduce uh, the degree of anxiety that people have. And we know that anxiety is, um, which anxiety is a mental state, but it comes with a physiological correlate in the body where the fight or flight branch of the nervous system is ratcheted too high. And there are chemical consequences such as cortisol. What we know is that the principal mechanistic theory of insomnia is an overactive fight or flight branch of the nervous system. So therefore, if these gravity blankets are helping people feel more relaxed and shift them away from this fight or flight branch of the nervous system into the more quiescent branch, the more relaxed branch of the nervous system, that may dissipate the physiological anxiety in the body and that may promote sleep. Have I seen any really good robust evidence yet? There was only I think two studies, there are only two studies published so far on gravity blankets and sleep, and they do actually seem to be supportive of that for some people. Yeah, I have a gravity blanket, um, and I really like it. So do it. I, actually. <laughs> do you? Yeah. Do you, what, yeah, what, I do. Weight, what, what weight do you have? I think mine is um, a, I think it's a 30-pound, um, but every time I have to change the duvet cover, Oh, it's the bane of my existence. <laughs> well, I was going to say, because mine works from that sense of, you know, almost like putting your own, your the palms of your hands, you know, on your own chest to give yourself a kind of hug mm. or to get rid of that sort of central factory of anxiety, which seems to be around the sort of chest and heart area. You know, or you can put your, 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 the palms of your hand on your tummy to, to focus your attention on getting your breath deep down there, which also helps and takes your attention away from that sort of knot of anxiety. But mine's a bit too small and I get really hot underneath it so it gives I with see. one hand and it takes away with mm. the other Matthew. gotta watch out for that temperature but yeah um but the, as i said the change in the duvet is really that you know i <laughs> after i finish that it's like a workout I, I look visibly thinner as a consequence uh when i've changed it that's how caloric it is but you do have one that's interesting do you use it every night i do yeah 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 oh, um i've I, I well it's it's just it's an experiment i am um, I have tried every sleep gadget, everything. I, I will try them all. I, I love self-experimentation. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah, so gravity blankets right now are the um, dish du jour that is covering <laughs> me. All right, what about in the secret center for people who can't sleep? Uh, what about eye masks and or ear plugs? I'm an advocate. I wear both. Um, I would say that... Um, the eye mask is useful, although for people who are extreme night owls who, and by the way, if you are a morning type or an evening type, it is not your fault, especially if you're an evening type. You know, society is sort of chastises the night owls because they're the people who struggle to get into the office at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, and they look half asleep and they weren't in the gym at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with you? It's not your fault. It's dictated by your genes. It's gifted to you at birth. Um, we know the genes now. Um, there are up to nine genes that will determine whether you're a morning type or you're an evening type. And so for evening types who have to wake up earlier than they would otherwise, sometimes 
an eye mask can actually be deleterious because you can say, well, try to sleep with your curtains or not blackout curtains, curtains that will light, uh, allow some light in in the morning and don't wear an eye mask. And that way, the natural light coming into the bedroom will start to help you wake up in an easier fashion. That's currently sort of the, the suggestion or the recommendation for night owls who need to wake up earlier than they would otherwise. But other than that, eye masks and earplugs, A-OK with me. And what about pillows? One, two, a special pillow? No good scientific evidence yet, which to me is shocking because, you know, it's it's such a an important ingredient and it's so unique. Everyone seems to have a different pillow um, taste preference. And I think this is, you know, a great opportunity for a startup company. Somewhere, somehow, you could, must be able to do you know, a 20, uh, a 20 question survey, or you, you take your phone and you do a three dimensional vision of your head and your neck and your shoulders, and you put in your age and your weight and ask a couple of questions. And it should come up with some, you know, artificial intelligence equation of this is the pillow for you. We don't have that right now. Um, and we don't have that for mattresses either. Um, in fact, our mattresses are some, that, that's another thing too. Think about your cars and you and I at some point, um, uh, we, we won't have time, but I would love to hear about how delightful it is to drive um, an XKSS. Um, it is an obsession <laughs> of mine. I'm a car freak. I'm a total gearhead. Um, and uh, I would geek out with you. So at some point, uh, if we're ever together uh, in it. London, uh, please bathe me in all of your automotive brilliance and genius. Well, there's I a man in California who owns an XKSS, and I know where he lives, and I know where the car is, so we can get you in that even. Oh, goodness. Okay, yeah. I, I'm, I'm dabbing the side of my mouth because I'm drooling right now. Okay. But anyway, coming back to your question, mattresses. So if you think about a car from you know 50 years ago to a car now, it's radically different. Your car now is packed full of sensors and equipment. It's incredibly technologically advanced. Think about your mattress 50 years ago and your mattress today. It's basically the same. Why aren't our mattresses packed full of sensors like our cars, tracking our sleep, modifying our sleep, changing our position, the pressure, the temperature, the sort of augmenting our sleep from one night to the next, updating it based on what our sleep has been before, finding the sweet spot algorithm for sleep perfection. I think the, the mattress is this vehicle for sleep betterment into the future. Same with a pillow. But right now, no good recommendations for pillows. It's crazy that, isn't it? Because you are right. I mean, there's, there's lots of companies that do this now and they give you 100 days free trial and memory mattresses and things like that. What about electromagnetic toppers? Have you heard of those? I have. And again, here, the evidence just is not strong. We don't know of good evidence that um, that electromagnetic field has got any distortion on your electrical brainwave sleep patterns or the quantity and the quality of it. Um, some people have looked at sleep patterns, I believe, in people who sleep over sort of, you know, the power lines where you've got very strong sort of electromagnetic forces. And those studies have been unequivocal. I don't think they've been particularly strong. But right now, no good scientific evidence that I know of, at least if it's out there, um, I'm sure folks will let me know. And I would love to learn about it and take away my ignorance. Yeah, I think Tony Robbins uses one famously. Um, I think it was in a documentary. Yeah. 
That's I mean, right. He, yeah, yeah. I connected with him a little bit, and he does. He he swears by it. But you know, the thing with those things, I would say too, is that the placebo effect is the most reliable effect in all of pharmacology, and if it is working for you, don't let someone like me tell you it's not. Take the placebo effect all day long. Yeah, I was. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to talk to you about this. This because you are such a fan of the placebo effect. I didn't know that scientifically it had been proven to be the most effective cure, cure or causal positive causal um, uh, remedy that you can take, or, or you can because you don't have to take it. Either sometimes the placebo effect is just there. There is now a very clear and elegant um, field of science which is all around the placebo effect. And you can look at it in the body and you can even look at it in the brain. There was a, a study that was published in a very high profile journal where in Parkinson's patients, um, there is a surgery where you will implant um, new um, brain cells, um, these sort of stem cells into the Parkinsonian areas of the brain. And gradually that will sort of regrow some of the brain cells there or give back these brain cells and the Parkinson's symptoms can lessen. How they got ethical approval for this, I don't know. But in some people, they had the brain surgery, but they actually never ended up giving those stem cells. So, and then they didn't tell the patients. Uh, now, they were ethically consenting to this study. They knew of the possibility. But in those patients who had the surgery, but didn't have the cells ultimately implanted, they also got better. See, in what other the words, going on there? what exactly this is the placebo effect. And what we're realizing is that there truly is such a thing as mind over matter. It is very real. And for a long time, we, you know, we poo pooed that idea. We just thought as scientists, no, your, your mind can't influence your body. There is a very clear brain body connection. You are an embodied organism. And there is reciprocity. Your body is always telling your brain things and your brain is always telling your body things. And those two have a very strong, clear, intimate association. Is it so intimate that actually we'll find out, you know, we'll find out one day they are one in the same? That's right. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of us in science don't treat them as the same, even though, you know, textbooks or when you go to conferences, you know, my field of neuroscience used to be everything north of the neck and then everything south of the neck you didn't care about. But now you can't do that because the body has such a profound influence on the brain that if you are just studying the brain and you're not measuring what's also going on in the body, you don't understand the brain if you're not understanding what's going on in the body and vice versa. Many of the body operations cannot function without the brain. Now, some of them can, you know, basic reflexes and your body can go on some automated processes, but there is reciprocity there. Absolutely. Okay. And if you don't deal with trauma or, you know, certain psychological uh, challenges, you know, via the mind or, you know, via the brain or via thought or breathing or meditation or whatever it is, it, it does come out in the body. And I'm, you know, you know this better than I do, but I, I've, the last year or so, I've just observed people that have come into the studio, you know, and if they are jumpy, it's jumpy because it's 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 mm. it's what should be being dealt with in their mind, literally, you know, having to escape any way it can, you know, physically, and you know, this this is happening more and more. And shingles, you know, is an extreme example yep. of that, isn't it? Yep. And you know, th this is right. this is not new stuff. 
It's not. And I think, you know, often what we say is that science now is simply putting the data behind everything your mother and Shakespeare ever told you about sleep and health <laughs> in general. Um, so. Uh, let's talk about not peace of mind as we go to sleep, but peace from mind, which is my new favorite phrase. So peace of mind <laughs> is what it used to be, but peace from mind is what it is now. What's the best thing for us to listen to and to, to you know, if we're going to maybe, maybe not watch anything, but maybe read, um, you know, what about listening to sounds or listening to people or listening to mantras? You know, is that good to put us in the right state of frame of mind for sleeping? I certainly think that um, meditation has proven very powerful in insomnia. We know this. It can actually um, shorten the time it takes people to fall asleep who are struggling with sleep. We also know that journaling, um, just getting, as you said, you know, if you've got emotional experiences or difficulties bottled up inside of you and you're not processing them or getting them out, usually bad things happen. And it will invade sleep as well. You know, Charlotte Bronte had this wonderful line that a ruffled mind makes for a restless pillow. And if you have a worry journal, so in sort of an hour before bed, write down all of the things that are just on your mind. It's all, almost like um, vomiting out all of the concerns onto the page. It's catharsis. And we know that that act also helps you fall asleep faster and stay asleep. So dealing with those things, I think, is a good recommendation. But to come back to your point, reading is a nice way of doing it. Try not to watch television, though, in your bedroom or on your laptop, because then usually that's activating. You should really only associate your bed with the place of being asleep or having intimate relationships. Um, <laughs> but reading, we will give we will allow that. And that's good in part because, you know, in this modern world, we're constantly while we're awake during the day on reception. Very rarely do we do reflection. And unfortunately, now in modernity, the only time that we do reflection is when we turn out the light and our head hits the pillow. And that's the last time that you want to go through this Rolodex of rumination, catastrophization and uh, deliberation. So the advice there really is try to deal with those things beforehand. And then if they keep coming up, which is fine, it's natural, they can happen find a way to get your mind off itself. <laughs> and that's why focusing on your breath, focusing on your body, doing a body scan, listening to a meditation or reading, all of these things take you outside of your mind. They take you off your internal worries and focus you externally, either on your body or on other things. Don't count sheep, by the way. The study has been done not only does it not help you, it makes matters worse. You sleep worse. <laughs> now, that's not to suggest that doing something isn't helpful. In fact, in that study, what they found, and it was by my colleague here at the same university I'm at, at UC Berkeley. She did the study, Alison Harvey. She found that taking yourself on a mental walk is a wonderful way to get you off to sleep at night. So picture yourself wherever you can, where you can navigate a well-walked path be it a nice one on the beach or in the woods or wherever it is, take yourself on that mental walk and just keep doing it 
And that takes your mind off worrying. And then all of a sudden, the next thing people report is saying, I'm waking up the next morning and I forget what happened after that mental journey uh, when I was trying to fall asleep. All right. Have you got 10 more minutes, Matthew? Of course. Yeah. Okay. okay. I used to like what Wayne Dyer ended up saying um, a couple of years before he's very sadly passed. He had this six minute prayer, but it's more like a poem that he used to go to. And you can play that. You can find it anywhere on the Internet. Um, and it, in a way, it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, but also because it's regular, it was like a six minute mantra. It's not too long. It's not mm -hmm. too short. And also because it has that um, that regularity to it. It's n you're not worrying about the beginning of sleep. It underlines the end of your day. So it gives <laughs> you a natural, regular ending. And it sends all those messages to, to your brain, to your being, that this is it. We, we got there. We did it again. What a great day. Little, little two, three minutes of gratitude, first of all. Then he kicks in with this prayer. And, you know, I, I, I use it a lot, actually. And it, mm. I can feel it slowing me down, you know. And I think, yes, I, yeah. think, I think things like that help me. I don't know, I don't know what you think about those th kind of things. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Again, no one's sort of, you know, done these uh, controlled trials. Of course you wouldn't, but there are many things that actually do resonate with science. The first is that having a way, if there was a sixth tip I could give people for better sleep, it's have a wind down routine because many people expect sleep to be like a light switch that you dive into bed, you switch off your light and sleep should be the same, that you should just instantly go to sleep. That's not true not for most of us at least. And sleep is much more like landing a plane, that it takes time to gradually descend down onto this sort of terra firma of good sleep at night. And having some kind of a wind down routine that you develop and then stick to as a habit that your mind and your body get used to and have an expectation is fantastic. You know, we do it with kids all the time. We sleep you know, we have kids. a bed. We sleep. Right. Yeah, we, yeah. Right. Yeah, you read them a story or you give them a bath or yeah. you find very quickly <laughs> at your own peril what works for your children and then you stick to it. And that's a great piece of advice for parents. And if you break from that routine, very bad things normally happen then we forget that adults are no different. We need a wind down routine, be it light stretching, being, you know, it listening to, you know, a prayer such uh, as the one you're describing, or just listening to um, someone, you know, with a boring audio book, um, <laughs> whatever it is. Well, actually, my voice is, is great. It's probably, uh, I, I think it's um, someone described my voice and personality as, you know, one of the um, sort of, uh, uh, best prophylactics known to man, you're, you're, you're that um, uh, unappealing. But I think finding something that is soporific, that helps quiet your nervous system. Remember we said that for insomnia, what happens when you, by the way, and, and this is, a, this is a, a profile that I'm seeing more and more of now that we sometimes see at the sleep center. People come in and say, I am so tired. I'm desperately tired but I'm so wired that I can't fall asleep. And it's what I'm thinking of as a wired or tired phenomenon. That people, yes, they're desperate for sleep, they're not sleeping enough, but their nervous system is so activated, it's in this fight or flight branch, what we call the sympathetic nervous system, which is anything but, it's an activating driving force. No wonder you can't fall asleep because you're too wired despite being so tired. 
And what you're describing through that act of the prayer and just repeating it is that you said to me, I can feel myself slowing down. That is a beautiful subjective description of physiologically, objectively what's going on in your body, which is that gradually you're making the shift. You're moving over from the fight or flight branch to that quiescent branch of your nervous system. And you can only fall asleep and stay asleep when you have been shifted over into that state. Find out whatever works for you from this kind of collection of ideas that we've, we've offered here and then stick to it. And I'm so glad that you found something that does that. Yeah, it's wonderful. What do you think about amber light? I think amber light can be very helpful because it's the opposite of the cool blue light that is typically emitted from our LED screens. And for LEDs were a remarkable advance. In fact, people won a Nobel Prize for their discovery because they were low power energy. But LEDs also had an unfortunate impact on our sleep because the LEDs are rich in the um, lower frequency of what we call the visible light spectrum which is the blues and the sort of the purples, the cool, the cold light. It's that light in particular of all of the light spectrum that is most suppressing of melatonin, which is the hormone that we need to release to help the timing of our sleep. Now, if we shift over into these light bulbs that then in the evening go from being nice and bright and sort of, you know, cold in the morning to help you wake up to then shifting into these amber reds yellows in the evening the idea there and there's some evidence for this is that it is less impactful on your sleep at night in truth i think i would favor those but i would also favor just the intensity of the light i think the intensity probably has a bigger influence on our melatonin than the wavelength of light, whether it's cold blue versus rich amber. That's definitely helpful, but I would focus even more so on intensity than I would on the uh, the sort of the hue of the light. So I've been playing a game recently. Uh, I'm trying to gamify my life um, because, <laughs> because we should do that more because we do when we're kids and then we don't when we're grown-ups and we, no, we don't really know why. Oh, um, if that's the flag you're raising, I will salute it. That's a lovely idea. <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've, been trying to, I've been trying to feel the moment I go to sleep. been trying to do it for a year. I haven't come close because I want to feel like what it's like to go to sleep. How can I do that? <laughs> so uh, you can... Uh, set little snooze alarms if you really want to. Um, and they can sort of just start to to wake you up. Um, at, now, half of the time, you're still going to be awake. Half of the time, you're already asleep by the time they wake you up. The other half, they will catch you just in between those two worlds of wake and sleep. And you can sort of delight in the, the culinary treat that is what we call the sleep onset phase. By the way, most people will know this from paying attention to their conscious mind because we dream principally during REM sleep, as we've spoken about. But we also have another phase of dreaming, which is called hypnagogic dreams, which is that transition from when we're just awake to then moving just into sleep. And as we're moving through that window that bridges the two worlds of waking consciousness and sleep, we have these little diet dreams 
sort of dreams, L-I-T-E. And they come with an archetypal shift. So you can be lying there in bed thinking, okay, so what I've I've got on tomorrow, you know, I've got to go um, see my friend. I'll do that podcast with that, you know, annoying uh, sleep scientist. I'm going to do that. And, and everything's logical, everything's rational. And then all of a sudden you'll say, and then there was that sort of zebra with the sort of the helicopter baseball cap that was flying around the room. And you think, my goodness, what on earth just happened? And in fact, sometimes that bizarre fracturing of logical thought to utterly illogical thought is so striking that it wakes some people up. Um, so notice what's happening as your thought goes from sort of, um, non-bizarre logical to utterly bizarre, irrational. That's the point when you're just going through that sweet spot of sleep onset. Yeah. So, so I have experienced that quite, quite a lot recently. So maybe it's working. I don't know. I don't know what, what end this practice is leading to, by the way. It's just, it's just my, I don't either. I worry about your sleep. I, uh, allow it to unfold naturally, but it's good fun. Uh, I I do love those moments. It's quite delicious, isn't it? Just to know yeah, you're yeah. on the brink of sleep and ah, oh, yeah. it's yeah. I drink it in. So, do you think we should? Because we we you know most of the world works still nine to five. I don't work nine to five, but I work the equivalent. I just start at three or four sometimes. Um, do, do we have we just fallen into this ridiculous ha- habit of working longer than we need to? You know, famously Tim Ferriss wrote his book, the the Four Hour Work Week, which takes it to the other extreme. You know, wh- why do we work like we work? And you, as you were talking about school kids before, what, in your opinion, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hold a gun to your head, uh, and I'm not going to, um, you know, hang you for getting it wrong. But you know, if you could come up with the perfect day for learning you know would you take a lunch break even or would you just go would you go from 11 till 3 and you know four hours of intense learning and, and that's it we're done and similar at work you know if you could if you could if you could rewrite the schedule of the world mm-hmm. um what, what, how, what might that look like matthew first thing to do is figure out what your chronotype is and then allow people to sleep in harmony with their natural biological tendencies. That's the first thing. By the way, you can figure out what type you are, morning type, evening type, or somewhere in between by taking um, a a little short quiz online. It's called the MEQ test, and I can send you a link and we can put it in the show notes if you like, but um, it's called the MEQ, which is the morningness, eveningness questionnaire. Um, And it will tell you sort of where you sit. Are you an extreme morning type, somewhat morning type, neutral, somewhat evening type or extreme evening type. The first thing we need to do as a society is allow people to have a much more flexible work schedule than we currently do. Same with school start times as well. And sleep in, as I said, in harmony with their chronotype, not forcing them to go against it. The second thing is to realize that your productivity is is hugely dependent on how much sleep that you're getting. Less sleep does not equal more productivity. That was a fallacy in the rote industrial era, and it has never been more true in the digital knowledge era. So, you know, I think the the notion here would be getting people just to work long hours, be on email at all times of day and night is foolhardy. Your brain does not have that capacity. Your brain can be far more efficient when you are sleeping. So some people see sleep as this cost. You know, if I'm sleeping more, then it comes at a cost at me being able to work. I see it as the opposite. 
every night I go to bed and I give myself my sort of eight and a quarter hour sleep opportunity, I see that as an investment in tomorrow. Because when you are underslept, you are so inefficient, it will take you longer to do what you need to do. And some people will say, look, the reason I can't get my sleep is because I've got so much to do. And my response is, I wonder if it's taking you so long to do that because you're not getting su sufficient sleep. So why would you boil a pot of water on medium heat when you could do it in half the time on high? That's a good night of sleep. And when you have a company, a workforce that is underslept, when you go out into your company, yes, everyone looks like they're working hard, but it's a little bit like spin bikes at the gym. Everyone's working, but the scenery is never changing. You're never moving forward. And so for me, sleep in the workplace is probably the very best form of physiological injected venture capital that you could ever wish for for your workforce. Why is it that the three most important things in the world, sleep, breath, and diet, are A, so undervalued, B, so overlooked, and C, the least taught in the medical profession? And we, we know now, don't we, more mm. than ever before, that, we, that we, we're worse at them, they're the lost arts. Uh, we now know the detrimental effects, scientifically proven, uh, better than ever before. Yet we still, you know, apart from conversations like this in your amazing book, you know, and, and like Dr. Michael Greger's How Not to Die book and How Not to Diet book, and, you know, there are some fantastic people out there, you included, you know, you're definitely one of the 12 disciples, yet they still remain. You know, you never hear a government minister talking about these things yep. when it comes to health care. You, you never hear... Um, you know, of, a, of a, a big expo where all this is taking place. Yet they are the three most important things in our day-to-day -day in the world for 7.6 billion people. What the fuck is that about? <laughs> I'm sorry to swear right to the end, but what is that no, about? No, 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 you have your, your same uh, passion that I do. I think it's for a number of reasons. Um, you're right, absolutely, in the medical profession. If you go to your doctor, um, based on surveys that we've looked at, Doctors will, on average, get um, only about one and a half hours of education on sleep in their entire five years of medical school. Now, that is one third of their patient's life. And furthermore, that one third of their patient's life has a profound impact on the two thirds of their life that is spent awake. So doctors are not at fault here. You know, it's not their fault that they don't know too much about sleep because we haven't baked it into the medical curriculum. And furthermore, it goes all the way up to, you know, I don't remember the last time that a major government of any first world nation, with perhaps the exception of Australia, that had a public health campaign centered around sleep. Why not? We should be doing this. Because we've had health campaigns regarding, you know, the dangers of drink driving, of drugs of abuse, of risky behavior, of, you know, physical inactivity, of poor diet, smoking. I don't remember any national campaign that gave us an edict, a blueprint manifesto about the critical essentiality of sleep for your lifespan or your health span. And I desperately want that. And... Where is it in our education system? 
I remember when I was at school, I, you know, got lessons, you know, people would come in and tell you about those things about, you know, safe sex or drugs of abuse or no one gave me the special lecture about how important sleep was. And then furthermore, parents don't really understand the importance of sleep. If you ask um, parents of teenagers, do you think that your teenager is getting sufficient sleep? More than 70% of them say, yes, they are. When in fact, less than 15% of teenagers actually think they are. So there is a parent to child transmission of sleep neglect as a consequence. So at every level, I think is my point, from the level of governments, down to the level of medical practice, down to the level of sleep stigmatization in the workplace, down to the family home, and then down to the individual itself. There is this just, I think, sleep deficit and this mindset that is preventing us from getting the necessity of sleep that we have here based on mother nature. Right, you're awesome. This is it, this is the final point now. Um, it's already past my bedtime, ironically. And I'm I know, to, I to, have to say, I don't think I haven't been thinking about this. I am going to feel so guilty, Chris. No, don't. Can you because... sleep in a little bit tomorrow morning? No. Whoever you need to see or tomorrow, I will write them a note. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But my point is okay. this. Um, you know, I do go to bed stupidly early and I do get up stupidly early. Um, my kids tuck me into bed. It's hilarious. Um, and uh, two of them are two because they're twins. Uh, so even they go to bed later than I do. Ha 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 ha. How funny is that? Um, but there was once a DJ who, who got far less sleep than even I do. Yes, uh, he was called Peter Tripp, and he is one of our most famous case studies in sleep science. Um, back, um, this was sort of in the fifties. Uh, uh, he was um, a radio disc jockey in New York, <laughs> and he had uh, his um, t his booth was sort of in Times Square. And for the March of Dimes, which was a charity organization, he thought that he would try to break the world record of sleep deprivation. And he was successful. He went for eight days and nights straight without sleep, although there's some argument that he may have been napping a little bit. Now, at the time when he was proposing this, he was a wonderful, affable guy, very likable, um, very chipper, very chirpy. People loved him. And the psychiatrists who were consulted said, look, this is a bad idea. We already know that, you know, sleep deprivation can really have a marked impact. And we're worried about this. And he said, look, I'm going to do it anyway. And then they said, OK, well, great. Can we actually track you? Because that could be a really good research paper. So he was actually very well studied with electrodes and EEGs. What they found is that by day three, he was um, completely he'd had a complete psychotic breakdown. He was delusional. Um, he was desperately <laughs> paranoid. He thought people were trying to poison his food. Mm. He was starting to see spiders in his shoes. At one point, um, his hairdresser came through to give him a trim and, uh, and uh, give him a shave. And he thought that it was a Secret Service agent coming through the door. And he ran out into the street and was nearly knocked down by a car. Um, he made it through to the end of that eight day stretch. Um, and then he slept for almost 22 hours straight and he woke up, he ordered the papers, glass of orange juice, scrambled eggs, and apparently he was fine. But unfortunately, 
Trip was no longer Trip. Peter Trip was no longer Trip from that point forward. Um, his wife started to notice that he had behavioral problems. Um, he started to have issues at work. His temperament and personality was no longer the same. He got caught up in what was called the payola scandal, where people were paying him underneath the table to play certain music to make it more popular. And then the last people heard of him, he was uh, going door to door selling books in the middle of America. Now, that's a very clear demonstration of someone who had a psychotic breakdown because of insufficient sleep. But other people have broken the world record and gone longer than that, and they haven't suffered that consequence. What I think this tells us is that if you are in that state where you have a predisposition to potential mental health problems, then sleep is absolutely paramount. And when sleep becomes absent, it can push you past the dangerous precipice of serious and grave mental illness. And we know this relationship. In the past 20 years in our research, I have not been able to discover a single psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. So I think sleep has a profound story to tell in our understanding, our treatment, maybe even ultimately our prevention of grave mental health issues. Um, but that's the, the warning uh, story of Peter Tripp, a very famous story, and it sent uh, some really uh, shock, um, I think, missile strikes across the bowers of, of sleep research. Well, you're talking about him um, selling boars, uh, sorry, selling doors book to book. It's and, clearly your bedtime. Yeah, <laughs> and, the and the story of sleep. Um, but no better book than yours. Uh, three years in, what is the rhythm of its sales on an annual basis? How does that work? It still seems to be uh, selling, uh, apparently. I don't keep an eye on, on the sales. Uh, the sales. Uh, I don't really uh, look at them. My publisher would probably tell me I should. Um, you don't have to um, to read the book. Uh, you just have to buy it. That's all I, <laughs> that's all I ask for. Uh, and by the way, uh, if you can find an unsigned copy, it's worth a fortune. So, uh, oh, there you you're go. so good at the old self-effacement. And b before you go, if people want to find out more, uh, your sleep school, your website, site um how, how do they how do they join how do they jump on the, the walker bus um so if they really want to uh they can follow me on twitter i'm there at the handle sleep diplomat um you can also find me on a website sleepdiplomat.com i am not on instagram although someone has grabbed the handle of sleep diplomat and is pretending to be me uh, and they're doing a wonderful job they're posting lots of great quotes and scientific knowledge but rest assured if you um sort of uh, sign on to a sleep diplomat on Instagram. It is not me, even though it suggests that it's me. But you can find me on Twitter and uh, unfortunately on lots of places on the internet. But but don't. You've heard so much from me right now if you've made it through to this point. Uh, go listen to more of Chris and other people. All right. Well, you're awesome. And by the way, you still have that amazing head of hair. So does, and I don't, <laughs> I, my hair's falling out on a daily basis. Is that anything to do with sleep or not? I would like to think it is um, that I am fast approaching uh, my fiftieth uh, birthday, and um, I I've, uh, I don't know if I if I look my age. If I don't, I will I will chalk it up to my sleep. Um, but I'm fortunate. All right. Well, sweet dreams. Um, sleep well. I've got about five minutes left in me, and that's me done. I'm off. Please my go way. get your slumber, Chris. Thank my you way. so much for having me. Okay, you're brilliant. Cheers, Matthew. Bye. Okay. All the best. You take care. Bye. Dear God, thank you for Matthew Walker. Amen. 
For more on Matthew and all other things How to Wow, please go to howtowow.org and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And please do rate and review because it makes a massive difference. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash howtowow now. And if you do input the How to Wow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel-free sachets today. That's their special offer to you via us. Athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.